Section 18 of The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10, by Anonymous. Translated by Richard Francis Burton. Terminal Essay The Knights in Europe. The history of the Knights in Europe is one of slow and gradual development. The process was begun, 1704 1717, by Galland, a Frenchman, continued, 1823, by von Hammer an Austro-German, and finished by Mr. John Payne, 1882-1884, an Englishman. But we must not forget that it is wholly and solely due to the genius of the Gaul that Europe owes the Arabian Nights' entertainments, over which Western childhood and youth have spent so many spelling hours. Antoine Galland, was the first to discover the marvellous fund of material for the storyteller, buried in the Oriental mine, and he had, in a high degree, that art of telling a tale, which is far more captivating than culture or scholarship. Hence his delightful version, or perversion, became one of the world's classics, and at once made Scheherazade and Dinazade, Harun al-Rashid, the calendars, and a host of other personages as familiar to the home reader as Prospero, Robinson Crusoe, Lemuel Gulliver, and Dr. Primrose. Without the name and fame won for the work by the brilliant paraphrase of the learned and single-minded Frenchman, Lane's curious hash and Latinized English, at once turgid and emasculated, would have found few readers. Mr. Payne's admirable version appeals to the Orientalist and the stylist, not to the many-headed, and mine to the anthropologist and the student of Eastern manners and customs. Galland did it, and alone he did it. His fine literary flair, his pleasing style, his polished taste, and perfect tact at once made his work take high rank in the Republic of Letters, nor will the immortal fragment ever be superseded in the infallible judgment of childhood. As the Encyclopaedia Britannica has been pleased to ignore this excellent man and admirable orientalist, numismatologist and literateur, the reader may be not unwilling to see a short sketch of his biography. Antoine Galland was born in A.D. 1646 of peasant parents, poor and honest, at Rollo a little burg in Picardy some two leagues from Montdidier. He was a seventh child, and his mother, left a widow in early life, and compelled to earn her livelihood, saw scant chance of educating him, when the kindly assistance of a canon of the cathedral and president of the Collage de Noyon relieved her difficulties. In this establishment, Galland studied Greek and Hebrew for ten years, after which the straight thing at home apprenticed him to a trade. But he was made for letters. 
he hated manual labour, and he presently removed en cachette to Paris, where he knew only an ancient kinswoman. She introduced him to a priestly relative of the canon of Noyon, who in turn recommended him to the sous-principal of the Collège du Plessis. Here he made such notable progress in oriental studies that Monsieur Petitpierre, a doctor of the Sorbonne, struck by his abilities, enabled him to study at the Collège Royal, and eventually to catalogue the Eastern manuscripts in the great ecclesiastical society. Thence he passed to the Collège Mazarin, where a Professor Godoin was making an experiment which might be revived to advantage in our present schools. He collected a class of boys, aged about four, and proposed to teach them Latin speedily and easily, by making them converse in the classical language, as well as read and write it. Galland, his assistant, had not time to register success or failure before he was appointed attaché secretary to Monsieur de Nointel, named in 1660 Ambassadeur de France for Constantinople. His special province was to study the dogmas and doctrines, and to obtain official attestations concerning the articles of the Orthodox, or Greek, Christianity, which had then been a subject of lively discussion amongst certain Catholics, especially Arnold, Antoine, and Claude, the minister, and which even in our day occasionally crops up amongst Protestants. Galland, by frequenting the cafés and listening to the tale-teller, soon mastered Romaic, and grappled with the religious question under the tuition of a deposed patriarch and of sundry matrans or metropolitans, whom the persecutions of the Pachas had driven for refuge to the Palais de France. Monsieur de Nointel, after settling certain knotty points in the capitulations, visited the harbour towns of the Levant and the holy places, including Jerusalem, where Galland copied epigraphs, sketched monuments, and collected antiques, such as the marbles in the Baudelaire Gallery, of which Père Don Bernard de Montfaucon presently published specimens in his Paleographica Graeca, etc. Parisis, 1708. In Syria, Galland was unable to buy a copy of the Knights, as he expressly states in his epistle dedicatory, Il a fallu le faire venir de Syrie, but he prepared himself for translating it by studying the manners and customs, the religion and superstitions of the people, and in 1675, leaving his chief, who was ordered back to Stamboul, he returned to France. In Paris, his numismatic fame recommended him to Messieurs Veillon, Carcery, and Giraud, who strongly urged a second visit to the Levant for the purpose of collecting, and he set out without delay. In 1691 he made a third journey, travelling at the expense of the Compagnie des Andes Orientales, with the main object of making purchases for the library and museum of Colbert the Magnificent. The commission ended 18 months afterwards with the changes of the company, when Colbert and the Marquis de Louvois caused him to be created antiquary to the king, Louis le Grand and charged him with collecting coins and medals for the royal cabinet. As he was about to leave Smyrna, he had a narrow escape from the earthquake and subsequent fire, which destroyed some 15,000 of the inhabitants. He was buried in the ruins, but his kitchen, 
being cold as becomes a philosopher's, he was dug out, unburnt. Galland again returned to Paris, where his familiarity with Arabic and Hebrew, Persian and Turkish, recommended him to Messieurs Thevenot and Bignon. This first president of the Grand Council acknowledged his services by a pension. He also became a favourite with Durbelot, whose Bibliothèque Orientale, left unfinished at his death, he had the honour of completing and prefacing. President Bignon died within the twelve-month, which made Galland attach himself in 1697 to Monsieur Foucault, councillor of state and intendant governor of Caen in Lower Normandy, then famous for its academy. In his new patron's fine library and numismatic collection, he found materials for a long succession of works, including a translation of the Quran. They recommended him strongly to the literary world, and in 1701 he was made a member of the Académie des Inscriptions et Belles-Lettres. At Caen, Galland issued in 1704 the first part of his Mille et une nuit, Contes Arabes Traduits en Français, which at once became famous as the Arabian Nights Entertainments. Mutilated, fragmentary, and paraphrastic though the tales were, the glamour of imagination, the marvel of the miracles, and the gorgeousness and magnificence of the scenery at once secured an exceptional success. It was a revelation in romance, and the public recognised that it stood in the presence of a monumental literary work. France was afire with delight at something so new, so unconventional, so entirely without purpose, religious, moral, or philosophical. The Oriental wanderer, in his stately robes, was a startling surprise to the easy-going and utterly corrupt Europe of the ancient regime, with its indecently tight garments and perfectly loose morals. Il produisera, said Charles Nodier, a genius in his way, dès le moment de leur publication, cet effet qui assure aux productions de l'esprit en vogue populaire, quoiqu'il appartient à une littérature peu connue en France, et que ce genre de composition admis ou plutôt exigea des détails de mœurs, des caractères, des costumes et des localités absolument étrangers, à tous les aidés établis dans nos contes et nos robins. En fut étonné du charme qui résultait de leur lecture. C'est que la vérité des sentiments, la nouveauté des tableaux, une imagination féconde et prodige, un coloris plein de chaleur, la trait d'une sensibilité d'un prétention, et le seul d'un comique sans caricature. C'est que l'esprit et le naturel enfant plaisent partout, et plaisent à tout le monde. The Conte Arabe at once made Galland's name, and a popular tale is told of them, and him, known to all reviewers who, however, mostly mangle it. In the Biographie Universale of Michaud, we find, dans le deux premiers volumes de ces contes l'exordes, était toujours, ma chère sœur, si vous ne dormez pas, faites-nous un de ces contes 
que vous savez. Quelques-uns gens, ennuyés de cette plate uniformité, alléron un nuit qu'il fait un très grand froid, frappé à la porte de l'auteur qui court à chemise à sa fenêtre. Après l'avoir fait m'enfendre quelque temps par diverses questions, insignifiantes, il termineront en lui disant Ah, oh, monsieur Galland, si vous ne dormez pas, faites-nous un de ces beaux contes qui vous savez si bien. Galland profite de la leçon et supprime dans les volumes suivants le préamble qui lui avant attiré le plaisanterie. This legend has the merit of explaining why the professor so soon gave up the Arab framework which he had deliberately adopted. The Knights was at once translated from the French, though when, where, and by whom, no authority seems to know. In Lounders's Biographer's Manual, the English Editio Princeps is thus noted, Arabian Nights Entertainments, translated from the French, London, 1724, 12 months, 6 volumes. And a footnote states that this translation, very inaccurate and vulgar in its diction, was often reprinted. In 1712, Addison introduced into the Spectator the story of Al-Nashar, and says that his remarks on hope may serve as a moral to an Arabian tale, which I find translated into French by Monsieur Galland. His version appears, from the tone and style, to have been made by himself, and yet, in that year, a second English edition had appeared. The nearest approach to the Editio Princeps in the British Museum is a set of six volumes, bound in three, and corresponding with Galland's first half-dozen. Tomes one and two are from the fourth edition of 1713. Numbers three and four are from the second of 1712, and five and six are from the third of 1715. It is conjectured that the first two volumes were reprinted several times, apart from their subsequence, as was the fashion of the day. But all is mystery. We, my friends and I, have turned over scores of books in the British Museum, the University Library, and the Advocates' Libraries of Edinburgh and Glasgow. I have been permitted to put the question in Notes and Queries, and in the Antiquary, but all our researches hitherto have been in vain. The popularity of the Knights in England must have rivalled their vogue in France, judging from the fact that in 1713, or nine years after Galland's Editio Princeps appeared, they had already reached a fourth issue. Even the ignoble national jealousy, which prompted Sir William Jones grossly to abuse that valiant scholar, Orcatille de Perron, could not mar their popularity. But as there are men who cannot read Pickwick, so they were not wanting, who spoke of dreams of the distempered fancy of the East. When the work was first published in England, says Henry Webber, it seems to have made a considerable impression upon the public. Pope, in 1720, sent two volumes to Bishop Atterbury, without making any remark on the work, but from his very silence it may be presumed that he was not displeased with the perusal. The bishop, who does not appear to have joined a relish for the flights of imagination to his other estimable qualities, expressed his dislike of these tales pretty strongly and stated it to be his opinion 
formed in the frequent descriptions of female dress, that they were the work of some Frenchman. Petit de la Croix, a mistake afterwards corrected by Warburton. The Arabian Nights, however, quickly made their way to public favour. We have been informed of a singular instance of the effect they produced soon after their first appearance. Sir James Stuart, Lord Advocate for Scotland, having one Saturday evening found his daughters employed in reading these volumes, seized them with a rebuke for spending the evening before the Sabbath in such worldly amusement, but the grave advocate himself became a prey to the fascination of the tales, being found on the morning of the Sabbath itself employed in their perusal, from which he had not risen the whole night. As late as 1780, Dr. Beattie professed himself uncertain whether they were translated or fabricated by M. Gonald, and while Dr. Pusey wrote of them, Noctis miller et una dictae, quae in omnium firma populorum cultorum linguas conversae, in diliciis omnium habentur, manimbusque omnium terentur. The amiable Carlyle, in the Gospel according to St. Frude, characteristically turned them downright lies, and forbade the house to such unwholesome literature. What a sketch of character in two words! The only fault found in France with the Conte Arabe was that their style is peu correct. In fact, they want classicism. Yet all Gallic imitators, Trebutia included, have carefully copied their leader, and Charles Naudier remarks, Il me semble que l'on a la parade assez de justice au style de Galland. Abondant sans être prolixe, naturel et familier, sans être lâche ni trivial. Il ne manque jamais de cette élégance qui résulte de la facilité et qui présente je ne sais quel mélange de la naïveté de Perrault et de la bonhomie de la Fontaine. Our professor, with a name now thoroughly established, returned in 1706 to Paris, where he was an assiduous and efficient member of the Société Numismatique and corresponded largely with foreign orientalists. Three years afterwards, he was made professor of Arabic at the Collège de France, succeeding Pierre Dupuis, and during the next half-decade he devoted himself to publishing his valuable studies. Then the end came. In his last illness, an attack of asthma complicated with pectoral mischief, he sent to Noyon for his nephew Julien Galland, to assist him in ordering his manuscripts, and in making his will after the simplest military fashion, he bequeathed his writings to the Bibliothèque du Roi, his numismatic dictionary to the Academy, and his Alcoran to the Abbé Bignon. He died, aged 69, on February the 17th, 1715, leaving his second part of the nights unpublished. Professor Galland was a French literateur of the good old school, which is rapidly becoming extinct. Homme vrai dans les moindres choses, as his éloge stated, simple in life and manners, and single-hearted in his devotion to letters. He was almost childish in worldly matters, while notable for penetration and acumen in his studies. He would have been as happy, one of his biographers remarks, in teaching children the elements of education, 
as he was in acquiring his immense erudition. Briefly, truth and honesty, exactitude and indefatigable industry characterise his most honourable career. Galland informs us that his manuscript consisted of four volumes, only three of which were extant, bringing the work down to night 282, or about the beginning of Kameralzaman. The missing portion, if it contained the other volumes 140 pages, would end that tale, together with the stories of Ganim and the enchanted ebony horse. And such is the disposition in the Breslau edition, which mostly favours in its ordinance the text used by the first translator. But this would hardly have filled more than two-thirds of his volumes, for the other third he interpolated, or is supposed to have interpolated, the ten following tales. 1. Histoire du prince Zain al-Aznam et du roi des Jeunis. 2. Histoire de Codadin et ses frères. 3. Histoire de la lampe merveilleuse. Aladdin. 4. Histoire de l'aveugle Baba Abdallah. 5. Histoire de Sidi Numan. 6. Histoire de Kogia Hassan al-Habal. 7. Histoire d'Ali Baba et de Caron Voleur, exterminé par un esclave. 8. Histoire d'Ali Kogia, marchand de Baghdad. 9. Histoire de Prince Ahmed et de la fée Peribanou. 10. Histoire de deux sous jaloux de le cadet. Concerning these interpolations, which contain two of the best and most widely known stories in the work, Aladdin and the Forty Thieves, conjectures have been manifold, but they mostly run upon three lines. De Sassy held that they were found by Galon in the public libraries of Paris. Mr. Chenery, whose acquaintance with Arabic grammar was ample, suggested that the professor had borrowed them from the recitations of the Rawis, Rhapsodists, or professional storytellers in the bazaars of Smyrna and other ports of the Levant. The late Mr. Henry Charles Coote, in The Folklore Record, Volume 3, Part 2, page 178 and subsequent, on the source of some of Monsieur Gollin's tales, quotes from popular Italian, Sicilian and Romaic stories, incidents identical with those in Prince Ahmed, Aladdin, Ali Baba and the Envious Sisters, suggesting that the Frenchman had heard these paramythia in Levantine coffee-houses and had inserted them into his unequalled corpus fabularum. Mr. Payne conjectures the probability of their having been composed at a comparatively recent period by inhabitant of Baghdad in imitation of the legends of Harun al-Rashid and other well-known tales of the original work, and adds, It is possible that an exhaustive examination of the various manuscript copies of the Thousand and One Nights known to exist in the public libraries of Europe might yet cast some light upon the question of the origin of the interpolated tales. I quite agree with him, taking The Sleeper and the Waker and Zain al-Aznam as cases in point, but I should expect, for reasons before given, to find the stories in a Persic rather than an Arabic manuscript, and I feel convinced that all will be recovered. Galon was not the man to commit literary forgery. As regards Aladdin, 
the most popular tale in the whole work. I am convinced that it is genuine, although my unfortunate friend, the late Professor Palmer, doubted its being an Eastern story. It is laid down upon all the lines of Oriental fiction. The mise-en-scene is China, where they drink a certain warm liquor, tea. The hero's father is a poor tailor, and, as in Judah and his brethren, the Maribi magician presently makes his appearance, introducing the wonderful lamp and the magical ring. Even the sorcerers cry, New lamps for old lamps! A prime point is paralleled in the tale of the fisherman's son, where the Jew asks in exchange only old rings, and the princess, recollecting that her husband kept a shabby, well-worn ring in his writing-stand, and he being asleep, took it out, and sent it to the man. In either tale the palace is transported to a distance, and both end with the death of the wicked magician, and the hero and heroine living happily ever after. All Arabists have remarked the sins of omission and commission, of abridgment, amplification, and substitution, which the audacious distortion of fact and phrase in which Galland freely indulged, whilst his knowledge of Eastern languages proves that he knew better. But literary license was the order of his day, and at that time French, always the most beguile of European languages, was bound by a rigorism of the narrowest and the straightest of lines, from which the least écart condemned a man as a barbarian and a tudesque. If we consider Galland fairly, we shall find that he errs mostly for a purpose, that of popularising his work, and his success indeed justified his means. He has been derided by scholars for Hey, monsieur! and Ah, madame! But he could not write Oh, monsieur! and Oh, madame! although we can borrow from Biblical and Shakespearean English, O oh my Lord, and O oh my Lady, Bon Dieu, ma soeur, which are translators English by O oh Heavens, is good French for Wallahi, by Allah, and Saint-Cord Cavalier bien fait, fifty handsome gentlemen on horseback, is a more familiar picture than fifty knights. L'officeur's dinazard, and Cette plaisante chorale des deux frères became ridiculous only in translation, the officious dinazade and this pleasant quarrel, while Sir Kiel y de Remarcable would relieve the Gallic mind from the mortification of destiny decreed. Plusieurs sort de fruits et de bouteilles de vin, Europeanese flasks and flagons, and the violent convulsions in which the girl dies is mere Gallic squeamishness. France laughs at Le Shocking in England, but she has only to look at home, especially during the reign of Galland's contemporary, Roi Soleil. The terrible old man, shake of the sea board, is badly described by L'Incommode Vieux, the ill-natured old fellow. Brave Maimoun and Agréable Maimoun are hardly what a genie would say to a genie, but they are good Gallic. The same may be noted of plier les voies pour Marc qu'il se rendait, a European practice, and of the false notes struck in two passages. Je m'estimais heureuse d'avoir fait une si belle conquête, gives a Parisian turn, and je ne puis voir sans heureux cet abominable barbier qui voilà, 
quoi qu'il soit ne danse un pays où tout le monde est blanc. Il ne laisse pas à ressembler un Éthiopien. Mais il a l'âme encore plus noire et horrible que le visage. It is a mere affectation of Orientalism. Largely, un vieux d'âme de leur connaissance puts French polish upon the matter-of-fact Arabs, an old woman. The list of absolute mistakes, not including violent liberties, can hardly be held excessive. Professor Vile and Mr. Payne justly charge Galland with making the trader throw away the shells of the date which has only a pellicle, as Galland certainly knew, but dates were not seen every day in France, while almonds and walnuts were of the quatre mendicants. He preserves the assource, which later issues have changed to noyau, probably in allusion to the jerking practice called inwa. Again, in the first sheikh's story, the meye is mentioned as the means of slaughtering cattle, because familiar to European readers, at the end of the tale it becomes le couteau funeste. In Badral Din, a tart à la crème, so well known to the West, displaces, naturally enough, the outlandish mess of pomegranate seeds. Though the text especially tells us the hero removed his bad trousers and placed them under the pillow, a crucial fact of the history, our professor sent him to bed fully dressed, apparently for the purpose of informing his readers in a footnote that Easterns se couchant en calaisant. It was mere ignorance to confound the arbalète or crossbow with the stone bow, but this has universally been done, even by Lane, who ought to have known better, and it was an unpardonable carelessness, or something worse, to turn na fire, and dun, in lieu of, into les faux dieux ne dun, and this has been untouched by de Sassy. I cannot but conclude that he never read the text with the translation. Nearly as bad, also to make the Jewish physician remark, when the youth gave him the left wrist, voilà un grand ignorance de ne savoir pas que l'on présente la main droite à un médecin et non pas la gauche, whose exclusive use all travellers in the East must know. I have noticed the incuriousness which translates along the Nile shore by up towards Ethiopia and the islands of the children of Calidan instead of the Kalidatani or Kalidat, the fortunate islands. It was by no means de petite soufflette, some taps from time to time with her fingers, which the sprightly dame administered to the barber's second brother, but sound and heavy cuffs on the nape. And the sixth brother was not Aulèvre Fendu, he of the hair lips, for they had been cut off by the Badawi jealous of his fair wife, Abu al-Hassan would not greet his beloved by saluting le tapis et ses pieds. He would kiss her hands and feet. Hayat al-Nafuz, Hayat al-Nafuz, would not throw cold water in the princess's face. She would sprinkle it with eau de rose. Kamaralzaman addresses his two abominable wives in language purely European. Et de la vie, il ne s'approche d'elle missing one of the fine touches of the tale, which shows its hero a weak and violent man, hasty and lacking the pune donor. La belle Prisienne, in the tale of Nur al-Din, was no Persian, nor would her master address her, Venez sa impertinente, 
come hither impertinence. In the story of Badr, one of the Comoro Island becomes L'Ile de la Lune. Dog and dog son are not un jour atroce et en dien de grand roi. The greatest eastern kings allow themselves far more energetic and significant language. Fitna is by no means forced to occur. Lastly, the denouement of the knights is widely different in French and in Arabic, but that is probably not Galland's fault, as he never saw the original, and indeed he deserves high praise for having invented so pleasant and sympathetic a close, inferior only to the oriental device. Galland's fragment has a strange effect upon the orientalist and those who take the scholastic view, be it wide or narrow. De Sassy does not hesitate to say that the work owes much to his fellow countryman's hand, but I judge otherwise. It is necessary to dissociate the two works and to regard Galland's paraphrase, which contains only a quarter of the thousand nights in a night, as a wholly different book. Its attempt to amplify beauties and to correct or conceal the defects and grotesqueness of the original absolutely suppress much of the local colour clothing the bare body in the best of Parisian suits. It ignores the rhymed prose and excludes the verse, rarely and very rarely rendering a few lines in a balanced style. It generally rejects the proverbs, epigrams and moral reflections which form the pith and marrow of the book, and, worse still, it disdains those finer touches of character which are often Shakespearean in their depth and delicacy, and which, when applied to a race of familiar ways and thoughts, manners and customs, would have been the wonder and delight of Europe. It shows only a single side of the gem that has so many facets. By deference to public taste, it was compelled to expunge the often repulsive simplicity, the childish indecencies and the wild orgies of the original, contrasting with the gorgeous tints, the elevated morality and the religious tones of passages which crowd upon them. We miss the odeur du sang, which tastes the parfum de harim, and also the humoristic tale and the Rabelaisian outbreak, which relieve and throw out in strong relief the splendour of empire and the havoc of time. Considered in this light, it is a caput mortum, a magnificent texture seen on the wrong side and it speaks volumes for the genius of the man who could recommend it in such blurred and caricatured condition to readers throughout the civilised world. But those who look only at Galland's picture, his effort to transplant into European gardens the magic flowers of Eastern fancy, still compare his tales with the sudden prospect of magnificent mountains, seen after a long desert march. They arouse strange longings and indescribable desires. Their marvellous imaginativeness produces an insensible brightening of mind and an increase of fancy power, making one dream that behind them lies the new and unseen, the strange and unexpected, in fact, all the glamour of the unknown. The Nights has been translated into every far-extending eastern tongue, Persian, Turkish and Hindustani. The latter entitles them Hikayat al-Jalila, or Noble Tales, and the translation was made by Munchi Shams al-Din Ahmad for the use of College of Fort George. All these versions are direct from the Arabic.
my search for a translation of Galande into any eastern tongue has hitherto been fruitless. I was assured by the late Bertoldi Seaman that the language of Hoffmann and Heine contained a literal and complete translation of the Knights, but personal inquiries at Leipzig and elsewhere convinced me that the work still remained to be done. The first attempt to improve upon Galande and to show the world what the work really is was made by Dr. Max Habicht and was printed at Breslau in fifteen small square volumes. Thus, it appeared before the Tunis manuscript, of which it purports to be a translation. The German version is, if possible, more condemnable than the Arabic original. It lacks every charm of style. It conscientiously shirks every difficulty. It abounds in the most extraordinary blunders, and it is utterly useless as a picture of manners or as a book of reference. We can explain its lash only by the theory that the eminent professor left the labour to his collaborators and did not take the trouble to revise their careless work. The next German translation was by Aulich Councillor J. von Hammer-Pergstadt, who, during his short stay at Cairo and Constantinople, turned into French the tales neglected by Gallon. After some difference with Monsieur Consa in eighteen ten, the Styrian Orientalist entrusted his manuscript to Herr Cotter, the publisher of Tubingen. Thus a German version appeared, the translation of a translation, at the hand of Professor Zinzeling, while the French version was unaccountably lost en route to London. Finally, the Comte Arnaudite, etc., appeared in a French translation by G. S. Tributio. Von Hammer took liberties with the text, which can compare only with those of Lane. He abridged and retrenched, till the likeness in places entirely disappeared. He shirked some difficult passages, and he misexplained others. In fact, the work did no honour to the amiable and laborious historian of the Turks. The only good German translation of the Knights is due to Dr. Gustav Wahl, who was born on April the 24th, 1808, is still, 1886, professing at Heidelberg. His originals, he tells us, were the Breslau edition, the Bulak text of Abd al-Rahman al-Safadi, and a manuscript in the library of Saxe-Gotha. The venerable savant, who has rendered such service to Arabism, informs me that Auguste Lewald's Vorhalla was written without his knowledge. Dr. Weil neglects the division of days, which enables him to introduce any number of tales. For example, Galland's Eleven occupy a large part of Volume 3. The Vorwort wants development. The notes, confined to a few words, are inadequate, and verses everywhere rendered by prose, the saga or assonance being wholly ignored. On the other hand, the scholar shows himself by a correct translation, contrasting strongly with those that preceded him, and by a strictly literal version, save where the treatment required to be modified in a book intended for the public. Under such circumstances, it cannot well be other than longsome and monotonous reading. Although Spain and Italy have produced many and remarkable Orientalists, I cannot find that they have taken the trouble to translate the knights for themselves. Cheap and gaudy versions of Galland 
seemed to have satisfied the public. Notes on the Romaic, Icelandic, Russian, and other versions will be found in a future page. Professor Gallon has never been forgotten in France, where, amongst a host of editions, four have claims to distinction, and his success did not fail to create a host of imitators, and to attract what de Sassy justly terms un prodigieuse importation de marchandises de contrebande. As early as 1823, von Hammer numbered seven in France, and during later years they have grown prodigiously. Mr. William F. Kirby, who has made a special study of the subject, has favoured me with detailed bibliographical notes on Gallant's imitators, which are printed in Appendix Number 2. End of Section 18